The media gods are angry. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's incredible panel, returning to the roundup, Hagar Shamali. Hagar is a former spokesperson for the U.S. Mission to the U.N. She has also served as the spokesperson for the Treasury's Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence and was a senior policy sanctions advisor at the Department of Treasury and a Middle East director at the National Security Council in the Obama White House. Hagar is an adjunct professor at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs and the host and creator of Oh My World on YouTube, a show that breaks down geopolitics and world news stories in a fun and easy way. She's occasionally moonlights over MSNBC. Hagar, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Ron. I love to be on with you guys. Also returning to the roundup is the highly sought after, inimitable crisis communications consultant, political strategist, and MSNBC political analyst, our good friend, Susan Del Percio. Susan, as always, it's wonderful to see you this morning. How are you? Oh, great. And it's so wonderful to be with you. And I'm so excited to be on with Hagar. We haven't done a politicology episode together, so this is exciting. I agree. So you occasionally cross paths over on MSNBC, and politicology gets you both at the same time. Up first this week, we're going to the cable news shakeup and the ouster of Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon from Fox News and CNN. Then we'll discuss Joe Biden's anticlimactic announcement that he's running for re-election and the responses to it. Next, we'll break down President Zelensky's phone call with Chinese leader Xi Jinping and what it could mean for Xi's positioning as a global statesman. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we will discuss the very bad tactic of trying to win over support for climate change activism by letting the air out of people's tires. To get ad-free access to the show, plus many more special episodes on a private podcast feed, head on over to politicology.com slash plus, or click the link at the top of today's show notes. We'll dive in right after this. Okay, in a major shakeup in the world of cable news, Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon, two of the most recognizable and controversial figures in the industry, were fired from their respective networks, Fox News and CNN, on Monday. Both hosts had become polarizing figures in the world of cable news, with Carlson known for his extreme views, controversial statements, and dare I say, Putin stoogery, and Lemon for his anti-Trump rhetoric and outspokenness. Lemon's firing came after what the AP called a short and disastrous run as a morning show host that included the viral clip of him claiming former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley was past her prime in a discussion about her launching her presidential campaign, which we talked about on February 24th with Mike Madrid and Frank Sadler. There was also reportedly tension on the set of CNN this morning after an incident in early December when he blew up at a co-host, Caitlin Collins. Even more surprising, though, than Lemon's ouster was the news announced minutes earlier that Fox News' highest-rated primetime host, Tucker Carlson, had gotten the axe. On the heels of the network's $787.5 million settlement in a defamation lawsuit filed by Dominion Voting Systems, Carlson was told he was being let go 10 minutes before the network announced his departure. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. The Los Angeles Times reported that the decision to fire Carlson came directly from Rupert Murdoch, but the Wall Street Journal is reporting that the decision came from Murdoch's son, Lachlan, in consultation with Fox News chief executive Suzanne Scott. Carlson was in the eye of the storm in the Dominion Voting Systems lawsuit. Several texts and emails from him were made public as part of the trove of communications from Fox hosts uh, and executives uh, as a result of the lawsuit. Uh, Those included a text to Sean Hannity asking him to get a Fox reporter fired for fact-checking a tweet from Donald Trump and calling Donald Trump a demonic force and a destroyer. He was also at the center of a lawsuit filed by his former head of booking, Abby Grossberg. So Susan, last week on the Roundup, uh, we talked about the settlement of the Dominion lawsuit, and Michael Steele thought it wasn't going to really change the way Fox operated. Senator Doug Jones thought that the settlement alone wasn't going to change their behavior. I had a slightly more optimistic view that, you know, almost a billion dollars is a lot of money, and Fox doesn't want to pay that over and over and over again for continuing to lie uh, egregiously on their network and that maybe it would shape their behavior a bit. Um, since then, Fox has parted ways with both Tucker Carlson and Don, Dan Bongino. How are you reading the move? 
Um, well, first, let me also add to why I don't think it's such a big deal for Fox. Apparently, it's not really going to cost them that much because they're going to be able to write off and have insurance pay for most of that money. So it's not a direct bottom line issue. But more importantly, I don't think it, it this was about Tucker thinking he was bigger than the network. And, the, you know, let's not forget, this is a family run business. And Rupert Murdoch and his kids, especially his son, um, who runs it with him, they do not like being thought of as second fiddle. And that's basically what we started to see with some of the um, statements that came out in the disclosure process that Tucker Carlson got too big. I also think that the other issue was, and it just came up recently, is the language that Tucker used against Suzanne Scott. And I think that's actually what gets them more concerned. He many times in text used um, the C word. He was very vile in his language. And he, again, acted as if they don't know what they're talking about. I'm the, I'm the guy. So as far as Fox goes, I think that this was about covering their butt in in part with Tucker, but also showing him the door to say, hey, no one's bigger than Fox. We can make that next uh, eight o'clock host. Whoever it may be, we can make them that popular because we have the viewership. Although it is worth noting the last couple of days, there has been a downtick in um, on the eight o'clock hour ratings and it has moved to Newsmax. But I think it will start to level out once there's someone familiar to the audience, or just even knew that offers a different perspective, but still in the Tucker vein. So when do we get to see you on the 8 p.m. slot? <laughs> About 20 minutes from never. <laughs> any any ideas who might take his place? Because some people are speculating that, you know, Tucker's successor is going to be worse than he was. And I I don't I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know if I believe it. Um, I don't, I have no idea who they, it wouldn't surprise me who they put in, but I do think, you know, it could be someone from the five, which is the, the Fox show has, um, at 5 PM with, with a bunch of people, including Janine Pirro, although she failed miserably at her last, uh, hour on the weekends with Fox. The five is like their top rated show and maybe they're willing to break it up. I don't think so, but. I think they're going to leave it open for a little bit and see if they could get maybe some celebrity hosts who will be just as bad as Tucker. Make no mistake about it, but they will be humble to Fox and that's what matters. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Hagar, hours after he was fired, Tucker was offered work by the Russian state media network RT on Twitter. He has of course, been a vocal critic of Western support for Ukraine. He's called Zelensky a dictator. He said that the claim that the war in Ukraine is about national sovereignty is a lie. And excuse me, but having been there, that's a lie. He has also uh, ties to Hungary and its authoritarian leader, Viktor Orban. Carlson has interviewed Orban and did a run of shows from Budapest in 2021. What impact do you think his firing might have on support for U.S. involvement in foreign affairs you know, depending on the host who replaces him. Well, like Susan, and I should I should add, by the way, uh, because Susan and I have been ships sailing in the night at at MSNBC and and here as well. I, for listeners, nod furiously as she talks. And and mm-hmm. Susan, when you're on pol- politicology and I'm listening, and in my car, I am doing the same <laughs> thing. So to add to her point, because this is really important. I I also expect that someone just as bad as Tucker Carlson would be in that seat because I don't think the decision to remove him had anything to do with the lies he spewed because those were directly tied to ratings. So clearly ratings are their number one goal. And when it when when the bad behavior strays into HR violations and then this this cockiness of being bigger than the network, that's when they want to lay the law, right? And so that said, I expect someone just as bad. 
And I, I can't, I don't know the insides of uh, the inner workings of Fox and whether they'll choose someone from the five, for example, or whether they'll choose kind of a rotating, uh, at least until they have someone permanent, uh, rotating slew of, of other extremist voices. But, um, but either way, I would expect that person to do the same thing because his formula was based on, on giving talking points that he knew his listeners wanted to hear. It wasn't even based on what he thought was accurate. And now Ukraine, he does seem to believe his own lies. And, and it really isn't even critical of Ukraine. It's, it's flat out Russian propaganda. He calls Crimea Russian Crimea, which is historically wrong. It is, that is not even an accurate thing to say. And it, it, and, and by the way, this is a guy who allegedly majored in history. Um, and I looked up his bio on Wikipedia. Don't waste your time with that, but it is quite fascinating because it doesn't even make sense to who he is today. So that's why what makes it fascinating. But anyway, he, he would say things like that, that, that Ukraine was a client state of the, of the U S department of state, which goes against our own government. So I would expect the next person to say similar things because it's what the audience apparently wants to hear. And unfortunately, I know some folks who who like his show, who watch Fox News, and they repeat the same rhetoric to me all the time. Ukraine is deeply corrupt and Ukraine had, has corruption problems. I understand that. Every foreign policy expert knows that. Uh, they've also been working on it and the U.S. has been holding their hand through that process. And is there improvement to make? Absolutely. But uh, the way he harped on this and the way he used this as a as a reason for the U.S. not to support Ukraine in this war is just abhorrent. But unfortunately, I expect it to continue. Yeah. Uh, as someone who's not a regular cable news viewer, I did occasionally, um, you know, go back and watch a, a full monologue from Tucker just to see how he does what he does. And it is actually remarkable how you can, let's say it's a 10 minute monologue. I, I, there are multiple points along the way where I, I can acknowledge, okay, that's a fact. That's a fact. That's well-documented. That's a fact. And then you get to around minute nine and he drops like a bombshell of a question mark that's completely unfounded and misleading. And you end up in, you end up in La La Land. And, and it, it really is uh, amazing to watch. But a lot of the things that he says are facts that are then taken out of context to lead you to, to, to a disastrous, a wrong conclusion. But I want to talk about the audience for a minute. So Ross Douthat from the New York Times wrote a piece this week about how he has, he, Carlson, has embodied a shift in the, the newer and especially younger faction on the right that's defined by this politics of suspicion. And he described it as a deep distrust of all institutions, a comfort with outsider forms of knowledge and conspiratorial theories, a hostility toward official mouthpieces and corporate government alliances, a skepticism about American empire, and a pessimism about the future of America. And he noted that until recently, this mindset would have been more common among the ultra-left crowd, like Noam Chomsky and Michael Moore. And again, I, I keep returning again and again to Molly's metaphor of the pincer, where a pincer of isolationism. Um, where, or you could just call it horseshoe theory, right? Where on the extremes of the political spectrum, you tend to see the same tendencies. So I wonder how you're seeing this realignment play out, um, and 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 how how you see this move changing the cable news landscape writ large. But this is to both of you. I just want you to think about that. So I think that cable news is on its way out the door, frankly. And that's the bigger problem for these networks is how to put together an audience and keep them there. And Fox is the number one network. I always laugh because they make from the mainstream media. How can you call them not the mainstream media when they like double the number of viewers of CNN and MSNBC combined? It just kind of makes me laugh. But it's it is all about the bottom line. And we did see that come out in the discovery of uh, of the lawsuit against Fox, but I even see it crossing over. And this is what kind of concerns me is more opinion on daytime on these cable networks. So when you start letting that happen, then your point of view shows break even further towards mm. the left or the right, depending what you're watching. Mm. And 
there it, people are craving it. They want they want the confrontation. They want they want their uh, a validation of they're not wrong to be upset about something that they're told is wrong. Like you shouldn't, you know, they, they basically in, like when it comes to Fox, I, I honestly think people are looking for validation for their racism. For example, I don't know how to put it any more blunt than that. That's what they are looking for. And I don't see any real alignment because Fox has to keep playing to that. Hagar, what about you? Uh, like Susan, I agree that, that cable news is, if not, if not on its way out the door, it's it's out the door just because of the sheer numbers. And listen, I say this, I should note that I have my shows on YouTube and there's a reason I put it on YouTube. And while I don't have hundreds of thousands of subscribers, that's the goal. And the, the thing is, I'm going to give you a statistic that is fact, just to prove to you that that cable news is is on its way out, which is that they're... If you look at a network like MSNBC, its highest rated show is, uh, well, it was Rachel Maddow, 9 p.m. hour, and it was about an average of 900,000 viewers a night, and for not including like election nights and stuff like that. And if you compare for the same network, their show that they had on Snapchat for uh, hosted by Savannah Sellers, it had... At the last I checked, though it's probably grown since, 13 million subscribers. So, and and each show that they would put out had between one and two and four million downloads. So, it's you're talking about being able to grab the masses, and that is what YouTube does. When you look at a lot of the big YouTube shows out there, and a lot of them talk about news, the Gary Vaynerchuk and Philly DeFranco, they have millions and millions of subscribers and views, and. So you just can't compare. And cable news, I find they keep trying to reinvent themselves and you see it, right? You see CNN Plus and you see Peacock and and they're trying. But at the end of the day, they're not really taking off. CNN Plus obviously never took off. And it's because they're just applying the same formula on a different medium. But that's not what the younger generation wants. They want news delivered in a completely different format. They don't want, they don't like the partisan banter. They find it very disingenuous. And by the way, it is disingenuous and performative. And, and Tucker Carlson proved that, you know, in, in plain sight. And so I, I don't think that they have a future and I think they're going to struggle finding how, you know, figuring out how to evolve. Well, and I just want to add on to that because right now on, and I, you know, as you said, I am a MSNBC, NBC news political analyst. So I just want to, you know, full disclosure. Um, there's no question that NBC news now, which is streaming for NBC is, gets way more eyeballs than MSNBC because I can tell on my Twitter feed. Um, it's something <laughs> that they have invested in and actually NBC has done very well. They were kind of slow, but if you look at the shows even migrating towards it, it there are positive ways to do it. My big concern is, Hagar makes a very good point. People are looking for different ways to get their information, but where are the journalistic credentials that, make a difference when you see it, at least if you see a news report from even from Fox or NBC, if it's news, not the point of view shows. I'm not talking about the Tucker shows. I'm talking about, you know, 11 a.m. They're reporting something. There is journalistic integrity. I know people don't believe it, but there really is. I know a lot of them and they really stand by it. And I feel like when we explore other ways to get information, people may not always be able to find the right voices. Different opinions are fine, but where are, where's this information coming from and is it sourced and is it valid? So that is a big concern for me as far as how we're getting it. But then again, 10 years ago, do you know where most young people got their news from? Their number one source, the comedy channel. Comedy oh, that's network. right. I remember that. That's right. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that's that's how it works. So, I mean, <laughs> there is hope, but I just, I think that, yeah, MSNBC or CNN, like, they're all going to move to different platforms. But again, they'll at least have their journalists on those platforms, which is important. Because we talked about Don Lemon and we talked about Tucker Carlson. I think it's also important to remember that day started off with the head of NBC Universal, Jeff Schell 
resigning, leaving, mm-hmm. um, just saying, drop, you know, leaving just by because of an inappropriate wow. relationship. So my phone started exploding that night or before that 12 hours before the Tucker broke story broke. So it was a crazy, crazy day in, in media to say the very least. Yeah. It, I remember I completely missed that story. It was one headline after the next that I, I remember, I think woke, I woke up to the NBC one and then yeah. throughout the day it was Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon. I don't remember which one was first. And I remember thinking, I was like, what happened in the planets <laughs> that they decided to purge media of, of then, toxic folks? You know, yeah. The media yeah. gods are angry. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. The institutions are crumbling. On Tuesday, President Biden formally announced his bid for re-election in a video released in the early morning. The launch came exactly four years after Biden announced his 2020 campaign. Uh, I was kind of disappointed, I'll be honest, uh, in the the fact that it was simply a video, not like a, you know, a traditional campaign uh, announcement. Um, Last week, 538 had Biden's average at 43%. Uh, and about nine points underwater, which is only one point higher than Trump's approval rating in mid-April of 2019. Uh, Biden's announcement came just hours after NBC News released a poll showing that a majority of Americans do not want Joe Biden or Donald Trump to run for re-election. The poll was conducted before the announcement. Um, 70% of Americans and half of Democrats said Biden should not run for re-election. Half of Democrats said Biden should not run for re-election. 60% of Americans and a third of Republicans said Trump should not run. Half of the people who said Biden should not run again cited his age as a major reason for why he shouldn't run. On Wednesday, Democratic communications strategist Liz Smith, friend of politicology, wrote about Biden's reelection bid and the challenges he's facing, uh, the low approval ratings and his age. She wrote about what his team is doing to counteract them, their, their full-court press of events highlighting infrastructure projects, private sector investment in manufacturing, his 73-minute-long State of the Union address and surprise visit uh, to an active war zone in Ukraine, in part to mitigate concerns about his age. But she wrote that his biggest advantage comes from, quote, the chaos among Republicans, things like uh, Florida's new six-week abortion ban, uh, which could hurt Republicans in the general election, and that Biden doesn't provoke the same divisiveness that Trump does. Uh, Despite his low approval ratings, voters uh, voting against Biden was not as big of a motivating factor for voters compared to voting against Trump in 2018. She wrote Biden's path to victory could run through navigating the debt ceiling showdown with Speaker McCarthy, um, which, by the way, on, on Wednesday, the House narrowly passed a bill that would raise the debt ceiling while cutting spending and eliminating major elements of Biden's domestic agenda. She 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 wrote that this issue is tailor made to play. Uh, to Biden's core strength, which is being a steady hand in a p- chaotic political system, uh, and that he would need to reach voters in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Georgia with messaging about improvements in infrastructure, um, manufacturing, job creation during his first term and his plans for the next four years. And finally, she wrote that Biden's message must be as subtle as a sledgehammer. Quote, do you really want to hand the country over to the Republicans and relive the chaos of the Trump years? Susan, what do you make of Liz's strategy? I think she's right. Um, this is a republic. Biden should just be president. That's all he needs to do. I was actually thought it was very smart to release a video as his announcement to to run for re-election because what else was he going to do that wouldn't allow for typical Biden gaffes? <laughs> I mean, it was, and also like, right, what kind exactly. of big speech was he going to have? A big in rally, and it, it, to me, it. This just did the job because that's all he had to do. He had to announce, to simply put everyone in the Democratic Party at ease, that he was running, that Vice President Harris would be on the ticket, and they can move forward and start fundraising. This is probably more about fundraising than anything else. So he just needs to keep going as he is, because as he likes to say, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And even if it's not Donald Trump and it's a Ron DeSantis, with abortion being 
the top issue in the 2024 election. I think that Biden just needs to keep on message, keep doing what he's doing, have these events, be as government as long as possible before having to do campaign stuff. And then when he has the campaigns, he goes to labor unions in in key states and calls it a day. And I'm sorry, it's so impossible. Okay. I guess, I mean, I will confess to being one of the people who's really not excited about a Biden re-election run and very concerned about his age. I Oh, um, wait, wait, wait. I, I, hold that, hold, that, hold, hold on. Now, you didn't ask me about that. I am extremely concerned no. <laughs> about his age. I am extremely upset that it looks like another Biden-Trump um, race. Biden was supposed to be a placeholder. Mm-hmm. Let's not forget, we were about, he was about, like, let's get everything ready and we can turn the page in four years after four years of normalcy. The problem was with that argument is that Trump, like most former presidents, is supposed to go away quiet into the night. Trump did anything but that. So he didn't have a chance to create like this normalcy that he he really wanted to. I am extremely concerned about Biden's age. Let's not forget Donald Trump's only three and a half years younger. So it's not like that's going to be such a great argument. I look at the two men. One looks much healthier than the other, if you ask me, and it's the older one. But again, what what are my choices? I listen. Biden was he's not my who I would want as a president. But if those are my choices, I'm right there where I am in 2020. Yeah. What other there's no other logical choice. I'd rather have a decent human being who believes in our, you know, democracy and wants to keep us moving on a positive track even if I disagree with the policy. I don't believe he's out to destroy our country. Yeah. Okay. I'm with you in exactly the same ways, except I'm not exactly where I was in 2020. I'm there, but begrudgingly. Yeah. Like I'm not excited about it. I'm just, I'm not excited about it because now I've seen what I get with four years of Joe Biden. And I, 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 you say he was supposed to be a custodian president or a, a placeholder. I say custodian president, or at least shore up the, holes in our democracy that we, you know, that Trump blew through the, through the sides of it. And he hasn't really done any of that. Oh, wait, I, I love you, Ron, but he has done a lot of bipartisan work in his presidency. It's just that everything has been overshadowed. And frankly, the 2022 elections, he got it right. And I was completely wrong. When he gave that speech about democracy, I, I thought, why is he doing that? It should be about the economy. The economy's killing the Democrats right now. And he was spot on. And he has tried to do what he can, but again, against an element that is so pronounced in, in an unbalanced way, frankly, that we've never seen when a new president comes in and the old one leaves. So I, I do think, and again, I am yeah. not, and by the way, Biden actually exceeded my expectations from 2020. I had none for him. I just knew it wasn't Trump. Yeah, I I did not expect much. Mm. The fact that he got the infrastructure Mm. deal done, the fact that he got the chips deal done, and even though it was a tiny, tiny little sliver, it may have saved one child's life on the gun reform issue. Um, Yeah. So those are big things, and those are things that— the ind- independent voters, which we talk a lot about, especially with Mike yeah. Madrid, they care about those things. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I'm with you on those things. Those were good, uh, good policies. I think the Inflation Reduction Act was a fraud. Yes. Frankly. And, um, and, and actually, I, I'm, on the, I'm on the opposite end of your uh, enthusiasm for that democracy speech. I thought it was terrible because of what he did in it, which was equating support for democracy and a, and, a, and a democracy forward agenda with support for his domestic political agenda. That was, that, that was just a bridge too far for me. I really, really rubbed me the wrong way. I think we have to remember that, that the Democratic Party had a very clear strategic move. That's how I saw the way that they poured the, you know, it's Biden, it's no one else. There's not going to be really anybody competing in a, in a primary. The, the way the video was done, I thought the whole thing was part of this strategy, as Susan mentioned earlier, which is 
just keep doing what you're doing. And we, and, and the Democrats believe they will likely win. And I saw an analysis this week that said that if, if, if Biden can take either Wisconsin, Arizona, or Georgia, one of them, then he will win the electoral college, but that Trump would need to win all three. And so the Democrats are approaching this from this angle of, you know what? He just needs to keep doing what he's doing. He needs to stay healthy. That's an important one. And he's had, he's proven that he can. I mean, look at the Ukraine trip he took. That is not a trip for the faint hearted. Campaigning is, campaigning is where I'm concerned. If I went on the campaign trail, I would, I would, I would faint somewhere along the way. There's, I, you know, I don't know how he does it. So he just, he needs to stay healthy. Like Susan, I am extremely concerned about his age, but I agree. I think it's not fair that Trump doesn't get the same scrutiny on his health because I really think that three and a half years or four years or whatever it is, is at that level. I mean, I haven't been that age, so I don't know, but it feels like a very small difference, but but that said, to me, it's a very clear strategic move that if they brought someone new in, and I agree, listen, I, I'm, I'm a bit more um, favorable toward Biden. There are some foreign policy things he did I did not like at all. And there are things he's done in foreign policy I've liked. But to be fair, that's with every president. Um, but he, to me, it was very clear that they thought that by bringing someone new in, new or new or, you know, who's not the current president, um, that it would just open the floodgates for possible new stories and opposition research and who knows what new uh, messages or stories they could dig up. Whereas with Biden, they've already done this, you know, and, and their, their stories are just not going to be that new. And so that's, I think that's the strategy they're going for. And uh, I am not good at reading the crystal ball on American elections. No, I'm just saying, I, I really don't know if that strategy will play out. <laughs> no, I think you're right, except for, if, I would just like to highlight the big fear was not, if Biden didn't run, it would go to the vice president. And that's what they were afraid of, frankly. They weren't afraid, I think the Democrats were more concerned about because they would they would have to get behind her. She she would have to be the candidate, and they know they lose yeah. with her. God, by the I'm way, sorry. I need to That's tell just... the listeners how much I nod when Susan talks. <laughs> I know, well, I, know, I would I do the too. same with both <laughs> you and Susan Ron. Talks and I like <laughs> nod furiously. <laughs> but but yes, you are yeah. so right. You are so right. That yes. that was and and just one interesting. I I don't have the exact numbers uh, off the top of my head, but I. The Wall Street Journal did a poll, and then they said, for those people, which were the majority, who don't like Trump or Biden, when pushed if you had to vote for one, they voted something like 51 to 18 percent for Biden. So where in 2020 people hated Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, they broke for Trump. Right now they're yep. breaking for Biden. And mm. that's why the the Democrats are happy it's Trump right now. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I like, I get all that. Of course, it's just depressing. Absolutely. Sorry. It's <laughs> just fucking depressing that we're going to be back in 2020 with Trump versus yes. Biden. And I've heard, I have good friends of mine who were cheerleaders of the Lincoln Project who've texted me and said, you know what? If it's Biden versus Trump, I'm not voting for either of them. Full stop. I'll vote for whoever the spoiler candidate is. I was like, really? Even knowing third, like full well that a third party will throw it to Trump? Yeah. It's that, just because I'm because this is because yeah. further highlights that our yeah. system is broken. Okay, switching gears a little bit, but on, but on this topic, after his announcement, um, the RNC responded with an AI generated video, 100% AI generated video depicting a dystopian version of the US should Biden be reelected. And it's the first time the RNC has produced a 100% AI generated video. Uh, for context, over the last few months, platforms like Midjourney and Dali 2 have made it easier and easier to create images that are really hard to distinguish from photographs or real human-generated art, like the image of the Pope in a puffer jacket. Uh, Hagar, how are you thinking about the impact of AI on elections? It's a it's a conversation we've we we keep returning to. Um, and given the advancements, the rapid advancements in AI, and I don't mean like on a monthly scale, I mean on like a daily scale, um, we, we have, we're going to be so far more advanced in 2024 than we are today. So I, I wonder how you're thinking about this and also how our adversaries 
are thinking about this and plan to leverage technology like this? Oh my God, that's like the $60,000 question, right? It's it's million dollar question. I mess up the expressions all the time. I am terrified about what AI and synthetic media could do to our democracy overall. And certainly it's going to be further amplified in an election. I will say when I, I took a look at that video, that AI generated video you're talking about, and to me, it was very obvious it was AI generated, you know, like the figures looked waxy to me, they, you know, or, or fully Photoshopped and, uh, but, but that maybe because I'm sensitive to it or because I knew in advance, right. I saw the, the headline, but that said, most people won't know that's AI generated. And by the way, I just knew that time. I don't think nor under normal circumstances I could tell between. Well, they told people. Yes. It was a, yeah. it was a gimmick. They told people. What happens when you, when don't, you don't tell people? That's right. And it's, it's terrifying because the types of things you could do with AI, whether it's for a political leader or, and a public persona, or by the way, your neighbor who's never really had a public presence, any any kid who knows how to work this stuff and it doesn't seem that difficult to do could depict a video of that person committing a crime, saying racial slurs, you name it, and could throw that person's life completely upside down. And so when you have that's this is bad. So this is bad on a day to day society level. We're not ready for this kind of technology. And you've even had leaders out there, all sorts of tech leaders. I mean, even Elon Musk, who's not my favorite person, but even he said that ChatGPT four, the latest version, that, that we're not ready for it. That it, they need to hold back on it. And the reason for that is that the public is not ready for it. It it, it leaves it open for exploitation and abuse and criminals are chomping at the bit to do it. And it's so easy to do it and it will throw our society into disarray. And you have an example of this, by the way, that's very recent about six weeks ago or so, uh, maybe a couple months ago, there was a story in a small town in New York where a couple of kids at a high school uh, through AI had made a video of the high school principal saying racial slurs. And it wasn't true. None of it ever happened. But it caused, it completely tore apart the community. It tore it tore him apart. He almost lost his job. It was a mess. And later they were able to discover, and I don't know how, but they were able to discover it was AI and, and, and so on and so forth. That's one small example. Imagine that when you're talking about an election and you're talking not only about political opponents and their teams against one another. And, and by the way, the broader public who are doing that, but when you add foreign adversaries who are a little bit ahead of us on this, they have already been in the game of disinformation and misinformation and exploiting us social media platforms to disseminate that they are already planning for this. What I, I, the only thing is, and as you know, Ron, I am a very hopeful person and very optimistic. And that is the one silver, the sliver that I hope comes through is that I do think people are as worried about this as I am. And there are software platforms out there and companies that verify photos and video. And so if social media platforms and, and, and everything out there can just find a way to require that before anything is uploaded, uh, then I think that would be the best solution. I mean, I'm hopeful, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. The challenge, the challenge to that though is, and I discussed this with Nina Schick, who's an expert on deep fake technology. The challenge is that, um, the, the, the authentication technology is always behind the deep fake creation technology. So you're you're sort of in 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 a similar way to you know the government is always lagging innovation and, yeah. and technology uh, in terms of regulation. Um, the the you have you have two AIs that are competing. The one the 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 creation is always going to go first, and then the detection is going to come after it. So in the gap between those two is where all the mayhem can be made. And so uh, yeah, I, I, but I, but I take all I take all your points. I'm very concerned about it, Susan. I have a completely different question for you about the uh, about the Democratic primary now because after Biden's announcement that he's running for re-election, DNC said they have no plans to sponsor primary debates. Um, there are two other announced Democratic candidates, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Marianne Williamson. Um, and uh, last poll I saw was that Kennedy had uh, was polling at 19 percent. Williamson was at about 10 percent. Um, and they've both decried the DNC's position. Williamson accused Biden and the DNC of invisibilizing other candidates. Um, Bernie Sanders said he's not going to run. 
Uh, it's worth noting that parties don't usually host primary debates when there's an incumbent candidate uh, from that party running for president. Republicans didn't host primary debates in 2004, for example, or in 2020. Democrats didn't do them in 1996 or 2012. What do you make of the practice of not holding debates and the accusation that the DNC is canceling them and the claim that the Democratic Party is being anti-democratic? Well, they're right. I mean, (laughs) simply put, yes. But that's what political parties do. They are protecting their incumbent. I don't like it, but they are absolutely right. And what's even further proof of that and this really kind of burns me, is that when they ca- when the DNC came out with their new lineup of primaries, putting South Carolina first, well, New Hampshire's not going to change their, their status of first in the nation. They will move it up. State law. State law. Yeah. So what the DNC said is, if you participate in that, then it's a non-sanctioned primary by the DNC and you will be penalized for it. So it it even puts the state party in in a precarious situation. So, but make no mistake, the Republicans would do the same exact thing. This is not, this is inherent in our political system. They have it, they have. Yeah, but I don't think that Republicans should be the standard at this point. No, 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 (laughs) no, no, no. no, no. (laughs) I'm just saying that this, now, I also think the polling reflects people just frustrated with with Biden and they're like, yeah, sure, I'll go with a Kennedy or, or, you know, someone else who I don't know because they can and it's their protest. Yeah. But it, mm-hmm. that's the way the party's running until you start breaking them up and making them less important. And one idea I'm really exploring is I hate the idea of third party candidate for president because, as you mentioned earlier, it does really just hurt. The, the Democrats right now could hurt the Republicans, but more or less hurts the Democrats. Um, I rather see states moving towards open primaries for non-affiliated voters because that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing most, the country is a third, a third, a third. And the only place that's growing is the middle third, which I call the independents or non-affiliated um, is how they're actually referred to on the voting rolls. They should have a voice. And if they're given a voice, I think our primaries will look a lot different because of the participation level and how candidates will have to now appeal to a broader range of people. And the the perfect example, and if if Kennedy, Kennedy or Williamson were really, really into it, they would fight for independent voters to come out and vote for them in the primary and see what happens. It won't be major. But it would be something. It could change the dynamic. I think if we had ranked choice voting at the presidential level in 2024, that would be a complete and utter game changer. You know how I feel about it. I don't I like ranked choice. Neither do I. I don't like ranked <laughs> choice. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's a discussion for another time. On Wednesday, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky spoke with Chinese leader Xi Jinping by telephone for the first time since Russia invaded Ukraine last year. China's official account of the call is notable for a couple of reasons, uh, that they did not include the words Russia or war. It referred to the need for a political settlement of the Ukrainian crisis. That's how they put it. Zelensky said that the two had a long and meaningful conversation, but he also said, quote, there can be no peace at the expense of territorial compromises, end quote. Recently, Xi has been trying to position himself as a global statesman by helping to restore diplomatic ties between Saudi Arabia and Iran. He's also held high-profile meetings with world leaders like French President Emmanuel Macron. U.S. officials have responded by questioning if Xi has the ability to help broker peace and if he would intend to do so given his close ties to the Kremlin. Hagar, can you please help us understand how Xi is trying to position himself uh, and what it can mean for our national security? Wow. So it's we're seeing a lot of examples, as you said, of President Xi becoming or trying to become at least a a more global statesman and a and a world power broker and uh and that's that's not totally surprising but he's going to try and do it wherever he feels there's a 
vacuum of the United States or where the United States is not succeeding. And on one hand, you could say that we were going to need China in diplomatic negotiations anyway. And diplomatic negotiations are the natural next step. And, or maybe they're not necessarily the next step at this moment, but they are going to be at some point the next step to bring an end to this war. Wars end in a diplomatic negotiation. And the only way to bring Russia around is to, is to have China at the table. And so they're going to be a, they are a player that we will need to be included. And the U.S. knows that. The U.S. is used to that. But when I saw, for example, China broker the peace deal or the normalization deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran, at first my view was, you know what, I'll believe it when I see it. Because those two have been ideologically, religiously hate each other for decades and have been spending money and arms across the region to fight for influence. And so how that that's going to change, uh, you know, we'll see. But the fact is that um, if peace is made, that's a good thing. And fast forward a few weeks and we're seeing the latest round of talks. And I have a point to this. You'll see why. You see the latest round of talks in Yemen between the Houthis, who are, which are the militia that is backed by Iran and Saudi Arabia, and the two have had a devastating war and oh, that has caused one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. And they've had numerous diplomatic talks over the last, um, the last few years. I believe it's eight, nine years. And none has ever stuck. And every expert now tells me that these talks, they believe, will, la- le- will lead to a long-lasting ceasefire. And there are multiple reasons for that that don't have to do with China. It's that both sides are sick of fighting. Both sides aren't getting anywhere. But the fact that Saudi Arabia and Iran are now on, you know, a better footing because of the China deal that was brokered helps that helps the Yemen war, helps bring an end to the Yemen war. And so it can only be a good thing when you have more peace and when you have these kinds of things. And the Biden administration in response to this call said what I would have said to be, and it's how I viewed it, which was like, okay, it's good that they had this call because diplomacy always includes talking to adversaries and talking to unsavory characters. That's why, by the way, I was not a diplomat and it's why I worked in sanctions. I was much more happy going after the bad guy than talking to the bad guy. But that said, it is a necessary part of diplomacy. And so it is a good thing, even if the peace plan that President Xi originally proposed, and I'm going to put peace plan in quotes with lowercase, is even though it's a farce, and it is a farce, it was very vague, it was basically more a plan to plan, and that in in an effort to get to some kind of peace talks, that sanctions against Russia needed to be removed. And which is just, it's a joke and that's never going to happen. And the fact that he didn't say Russia or war in in these talks, uh, in the call with Xi, to me, made it look like he's, President Xi is Putin's stooge. And that doesn't make sense to me because President Xi's smarter than Putin. And there have been a- I think it's the other way around. Yes, and and, and President Xi doesn't like what Putin's doing. Uh, he wouldn't, this is not how he would go about things. He plays the longer game, as you know. He's much more um, shrewd when it comes to ex- his global expansionist policies. And so I, you know, I've rambled a little bit all over the place. The bottom line is to say- it's not bad that they talked. It's generally good. It's to be expected, but I don't expect much from it from here other than President Xi trying to make himself look like a global power broker. Yeah. Susan, I wonder how you think about the optics about this and and also how important it's going to be for, uh, let's just say, the successful presidential candidate in 2024 to take a hard line on China and when C is actively produce, you know, um, positioning himself as as a negotiator uh, in conflict zones around the world, how much harder is that going to be um, for, let's just say, for for Biden? Well, I think she's right now focusing internationally because his problems at home are so bad. The economy in China, it's mm. not like his people are not doing so well. So he has to show, if you will, world dominance. This is where he gets to say we matter and get more national pride in China. So that's, I think, part of the strategy in doing a lot of what he's doing. Of course, Hagar could tell me I'm completely wrong because I'm not a foreign policy expert. But it seems image-wise... Oh, she gave me the thumbs up. Yeah, Apparently, I, 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 as, <laughs> as per usual, I am fiercely <laughs> nodding. <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> so um, 
as he's trying to build up that image, it's scaring or concern. I shouldn't say scaring. It leads to concern in the U.S. because it's not quite saber rattling, but it's it's getting there. And think about who he's sending as the special envoy to Ukraine shortly. The former ambassador, the former Chinese ambassador to Russia, who is very good friends with Putin. There's pictures of them, you know, and I'm not sure what even that means, sending him to Ukraine as a special envoy, what message everyone's trying to play. But at the end of the day, for U.S. politics, it's going to be tricky because they've got to show enough strength against China, but they also don't want to provoke China because right now they're begging for it because they do want it. They need to appear dominant on something. And if they could take on the U.S. that on, I don't care. It could be, you know, anything. Um, it will be an important PR step for them, but it's an, it's a tricky issue foreign policy for, for this country. I think that actually getting Russia, uh, China so involved in this conversation and looking like they are part of the Russia uh, or they're on side Russia actually helps the U.S. and its allies keep support from their legislative bodies because it's like being now you can now make the proxy China. So for those Republicans who have been curiously out of step with with foreign policy of the party for such for such a long time. Now, if you put in front of them, it's not just Russia, it's it's China, too. That puts them in another position to get some strong footing, which would be good for the president, no matter who it is, because I think our policies are working. OK, la- last question on this thread. Um, we spent a lot of time on the show talking about uh, what Ann Applebaum, our friend Ann Applebaum, calls Autocracy Inc., which is the network of autocratic regimes that support and train each other. Uh, Xi Jinping is at the forefront of that group with Putin. Um, How should we be thinking about the damage they could do to small D democracy as they continue expanding their influence? Well, I don't want to be alarmist, but I, they're, one of their number one goals is to undermine democracies all over the world because democracy poses a great, the biggest threat to their own power. And you see it over and over again. That's why, for example, you see China trying to play this global uh, power broker role. In addition, by the way, to from to deflecting from their own in, internal problems, they do have major internal problems that they're also trying to deflect from. But the way they have spread their influence across Africa and by giving loans to poor countries, and most of those loans, by the way, have gone uh, completely awry. What, the way they've tried to enter into the Middle East by, and now these peace deals and so on. This effort is to expand their global presence. Why? Because it, it ensures the sustainability of the Chinese Communist Party. And that's their ultimate goal. That's why countries like China, Russia, and Iran interfere in our elections in general, and why they cre- they play with misinformation, disinformation, and they exploit the freedoms that we have in our democracy, whether it be because of our tech platforms, social media, um, uh, when the Chinese setting up secret police stations in New York City, by the way, to crack down on dissidents. Why are they doing that? It's because democracy and the freedoms that come with it pose a direct threat. So that's, that's, I, I would view that as a very real threat. And unfortunately, authoritarianism in general is on the rise even though there seems to be a greater intolerance for it. You see more protests around the world and more citizens who are against it. But they, the authoritarians, I mean, it's, it's in Myanmar, it's in Rwanda, it's, in, it's all over, and it's, it's Venezuela. It's actively growing because in some, there are many reasons for this, but in some countries it's also because there's an acceptance of authoritarianism because they view it maybe as better than what they are fed to believe as chaos and crime and conflict. Whereas by the way, authoritarianism usually results in conflict. Yeah. Susan, any thoughts on this before we go? Just that it's, it's interesting the way they come after our election. I can't help our, our, the U S elections. I can't help but thinking if they could just show enough chips in our democracy, it affects 
the world's other democracies. Taking down the big one or affecting the big one really opens the door to actually taking down other countries. And that, you know, is frightening to me. But the other thing I hear a lot is, especially from Europe, is they worry about us standing up to these things because they now see Trump as possible. Sure, Biden's in office, but who's the next president or the president after that? What's the U.S. commitment to freedom around the world? And that's going to be out there for a a long time. And can I add one more point that I should have made earlier? The the brothership, the bromance that you see right now between China and Russia, the and there we could delve we could talk for hours as to why that bromance is growing and 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 so on. But their num one of their number one goals is to replace the international world order as it was created after World War II in large part because it was it was it's led by the United States and the West and they don't like that they want to lead the international world order and that kind of gets to Anne Applebaum's autocracy inc you know theory as well it's it's tied with that so it's it's not it's against democracy it's also against the how the United States and the West view the importance of democracy human rights and freedoms and and the system that has been set up to support that yeah. Yeah. I just want to put a fine point on what you're saying, because I, I've said it a couple of times in the last several weeks, but China doesn't believe in even the existence of universal rights, right? universal ideals. They don't, they don't believe that they exist. Uh, for example, human rights, when, which, which is completely antithetical and compatible with the way the U.S. and the West sees the world. This is not just a, a, a clash of economies it is a. It's. It's not just a clash of ideologies. It's a clash of, uh, of of worldviews, entire worldviews. Um, we we couldn't be more incompatible on that front. Okay, I'm getting a nod. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. I agree. <laughs> now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories. This week, let's talk about what we are watching under the radar. Susan, what did you bring? I brought more news to come out at Fox or more firings. Um, Tucker Carlson doesn't exist in a vacuum. And rarely do you see one person just go down in a situation like this. So I expect to see... um, Several people go and a way of reordering this system. So for their next lawsuit, it looks like they're making changes and puts them in a better light if they go forward with systematic. Hagar, what do you got? I am, you know, similar to where we left off. I'm actually looking at this growing pattern that seems concerning of U.S. citizens who are working to support foreign adversaries like Russia and China. And in one week, last week, we had two stories, neither of which are connected, but two U.S. citizens were arrested for running the Chinese police station in New York City that was there to monitor and threaten dissidents here. That was two U.S. citizens. Those police stations are all over the world. These arrests were the first of its kind, though, tied to a station like this. So I think it's great that the United States, that DOJ did that. But it's it's disheartening to see that it's two U.S. citizens that were arrested. And then the same week, we learned that the U.S. is, the DOJ is allegedly, because this did not come from DOJ, they're allegedly investigating a a woman who's from New Jersey, lives in Washington state, who has been parroting Russian propaganda. She has a channel with tens of thousands of followers where she's pushing Russian propaganda and where she claims to be, she goes under the name uh, Davushka Donbass and claims to be living in Ukraine under uh, Russia occupied uh, in Luhansk, where it's occupied by Russia. And she lives in Washington state and her name is Sarah Bills. And she was uncovered because of the intelligence, the Pentagon intelligence leaks. So d- d- this channel ended up amplifying those intelligence leaks. And so people started trying to figure out who is this Davushka Donbass. And it turned out to be this woman, Sarah Bills, who's from New Jersey, puts on a fake accent. And by the way, she, um, uh, not only, not only, not only that, but she is a former, uh, U.S. She's a U.S. Navy vet. She's was in the in the U.S. Navy. And so 
like this idea that there are these U.S. citizens, and and I don't want to perpetuate any anything. I just it's I'm glad the U.S. government runs after it, but it's disheartening to me when I see that. So I'm I'm following that. Yeah, yeah. I'm always here with yeah. happy news. I mean, that raises all <laughs> sorts of. Yeah. I mean, it raises all sorts of, 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 uh, questions mm-hmm. about first amendment protected speech by us citizens. Right. And, uh, and uh, man, what does it mean to aid and abet an enemy of the United States? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know how you square yeah. this circle. Okay. But- <laughs> okay. I don't know either. I mean, I, I, I think it's, I think it's a hundred percent protected speech, but but um, but it is alarming. Yeah, it's the intelligence uh, leaks that got her. That's uh, was it. Wait, did yeah. she make money right. off of this? I right. wonder. Oh no! By the way, I'll add to the absurdity of the story. The way she was discovered as Sarah Bills is because she has a side hustle where she sells tropical fish. And no, I am not making this up. And she was on a <laughs> podcast that is apparently very popular. Ron, it competes with yours, I guess. It is a podcast that is about <gasps> fish tanks. And again, no, I'm not joking. And she did a rookie mistake where she. She was, her voice was obviously the same and her room, because the podcast was videotaped, the room she was in is the same as the one where she does her Russia, pro-Russia propaganda channel. So a Ukrainian group that has been trying to figure out who this is, someone happened to see this podcast or watch it, or I, I mean, I guess a a mutual love of tropical fish and, uh, and discovered it. Yeah. No, I mean, (laughs) the whole thing is absurd. (laughs) Can you imagine the odds of someone wanting to know about fish tanks? And Russian propaganda, yeah. In I Ukraine, don't know. I don't know how yeah. they did it. They, I know they were listening, and and someone said like that's the same voice as Don Davushka Donbass, wow. and yeah. <laughs> so. Wow, the Ukrainian intelligence, the, the information folks really know what they're doing. We 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 got to spend some time with some of them while we were over there. That's that's marvelous. Um, I have a quick thing. I spent the entire day yesterday at the first ever. Bitcoin Policy Summit here in Washington, D.C. at the National Press Club. Uh, I was with my friend Donna Riddell, who was on uh, Politicology last when we discussed the FTX collapse about Sam Bankman-Fried. She was doing a panel discussion about the regulatory uncertainty and complications around Bitcoin. But um, some very interesting things uh, happened there. Congressman Tim Ryan was there. Uh, Congressman David McIntosh was there. Um, they together announced a new 501c4 organization to educate policymakers about, and the public about the economic and social benefits of Bitcoin and other digital innovations. And uh, and the conference itself was it was invite only. It was very small. Uh, it was very interesting uh, attendance, and it was focused on telling the stories about Bitcoin that go untold, like how Bitcoin is a human rights tool used in the struggle for democracy and global freedom. And Alex Gladstein did this wonderful presentation from the, from the Human Rights Foundation. Hagar's nodding. Do you know Alex? Not only do I know Alex, Alex, I had on my show to explain, to explain Sam Bankman-Fried, Bitcoin, and he's the one who gave me yeah. the tutorial about the differences between Bitcoin mm. and crypto. And yeah. crypto, right. And, and he's the, great. Yeah, he's he's yeah. wonderful. He's, he's outstanding, and he had these three... Um, activists, um, one from Eritrea, one from, uh, from, um, Afghanistan. And, uh, where was the other from? I I can't remember, but their stories were just, just remarkable about how Bitcoin has, is, is enabling the fight for human rights in, in third world countries. Um, how the U S can leverage Bitcoin as a strategic asset to achieve geopolitical goals, how Bitcoin can serve as a unique stabilizer of energy grids uh, and an unlikely player in our country's renewable energy future. A lot of the stuff you hear about Bitcoin is that is uh, about the environment and about its energy consumption is actually upside down. It is a false narrative fabricated by uh, an an environmental lobby left. Um, And it's actually the opposite. If ever we are going to switch to renewable energy, we have to figure out how to stabilize the volatility in that energy production so that it can be efficiently consumed. And Bitcoin mining is the industry that does that. And there's there's really fascinating um, uh, information about this. So in any case, I'm planting this flag as uh, as another one along the way um, in Bitcoin's march toward 
um, toward more widespread adoption. I should also mention uh, Senator Ted Cruz was there, did a fireside, along with um, another one was Senator Cynthia Loomis, uh, who was remarkably well-informed about the fundamental difference between Bitcoin and everything else um, and how unique it is in human history. So I was very encouraged um, by both who was there and the way they communicated about this um, about this fascinating technology. And I think we will see more to come um, from Congress, possibly before, 20, before 2024. Um, Loomis has a bill that she sponsored called um, Responsible Digital Innovation, uh, Responsible Innovation in Digital Assets or something like that with none other than uh, your, both of your home state Senator, Kristen Gillibrand. So more on that soon. Uh, okay. Before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where we're going to talk about the terrible tactic, trying to win support by slashing tires, where can everybody find you on the internet, Susan? I'm on Twitter without a blue check. It was taken away. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, and I, I just want to know if people are actually paying for it. That's just what kills me. Um, anyway, on Twitter, Del Percio S. Wait, what? I have oh, God, I raising had no her choice. Hand. I'll tell you why. I didn't want to pay for it, and I was adamantly against. The reason I ended up paying for it was because they, after I made the decision not to, a month later or six weeks later, they told me they were going to take away the two-factor authentication. And as you can imagine, with the show that I have and what I talk about, I am targeted by foreign governments all the time. So I cannot lose two-factor authentication, and I don't have the technological wherewithal to figure something else out. So I just paid but that's the only reason mm. okay that's Thank worth you. it that's worth, that's it. worth <laughs> it totally worth it i mean it's kind of a shit move to charge people for two-factor authentication yeah, it's hostage taking it's like blackmail anyway. like yeah <laughs> <laughs> pay this or else we it's, will make you less secure no that's that's ridiculous but i bought into it because really gross rent i wasn't ready to quit right, twitter yeah, totally. well no one's targeting me that i know of so <laughs> i'm good <laughs> Hagar, where are you? I am at Oh My World Show on all the social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, uh, even TikTok, and at Hagar Shamali. And uh, my show is Oh My World on YouTube. Please subscribe. It's free. I feel the need to add that. And uh, and like yeah, like Ron said, it's fun and easy and a lot of satire. So join join me over there as well, please. You don't you don't charge for you know to hear the audio of the video while you're talking on the I should try to do that. I should charge extra for all the impersonations I do. <laughs> As Ron knows, I am often in a wig and bud accent. And uh but it's fun for me. But maybe I should start charging for those parts. We'll see. One day. One day. That's the, the dream. The, the accents are the accents are priceless. <laughs> uh, okay. Hope we made you think this week, Politicology. Talk to you next week. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at and even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>